and welcome to the Chef Pod, where we are sowing the seeds for the future of the culinary industry. We have a very, very exciting show today. We have a guest who's flown in all the way from Italy. Her name is Karima Moya Gnocchi, and she's a culinary historian and professor in the Modern Languages Department at the University of Siena. She also teaches food studies at the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. She is also the author of Chewing the Fat, an oral history of Italian foodways from fascism to Dolce Vita, published in 2015. And also, most recently, published in 2019, The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome, an epic culinary history spanning from the pre-Romans to present day. Both reconstruct history with food as a central focus, and along the way, deconstruct many of the Italian food myths that we take for granted. Moyer Gnocchi also teaches hands-on historical cookery and has a website about her activities, theeternaltable.com. Born and educated in the U.S., she has been a permanent resident in Italy since 1990 and currently resides in Umbria. Welcome, Professor Moyer. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's our, it's our pleasure. We also have a special guest here today. We have a George Brown culinary student, Gianluca. How are you today, my friend? Very well, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. You're, uh, you're a, um, a student in H100 program, and you're also planning to go into our Italian postgraduate program. Uh, yes, so that'll be starting in May. We'll get the opportunity to go off in August to Italy for 14 weeks, and we'll get a lot of exposure to Italian cuisine, Italian culture, a lot of uh, trips where we'll be doing Parmigiano-Reggiano, Aceto Balsamico, that sort of uh, stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking time out of your busy uh, schedule to spend some time with us as well. Uh, Professor Moyer, please tell us about your book, The Eternal Table. Um, the Eternal Table is um, a cultural history of um, Roman food spanning from the pre-Romans to present day. And really the, the premise of the book is, as many other books about history have taken a a particular perspective, for example, art or architecture, and looking at the history of the city through that. I'm looking at the history of Rome through a culinary lens, and so um, my approach isn't necessarily to go through and the years and say, they ate this, they ate that, and, and um, create this grocery historical grocery list. So um, what I want to do is look at the history of Rome through the relationships of people between themselves, with the land, uh, politics, religion, how all of that worked in with food choices, um, the development of Roman food, uh, examining also environmental determinism juxtaposed to to the, the very famous human ambition um, that went into the development of Rome. And why is it that that Roman food would develop in that way, given what was already there, um, and then then very much part of my discussion about that is mobility, because... Um, as a, as a sort of a longitudinal study, Rome offers, offers such a vision on the, the inflow of people and the outgo of people of all kinds throughout history for all kinds of reasons, 
including the um, the, the 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 pre-Romans who came down from from uh, northern Europe into the Latium area. Um, that starts it off, and then it just continues from there, really being about mobility. And I think that's a very important topic in our times. Um, that these societies were not necessarily just a, they didn't spring up uh, in situ and they didn't, um, they weren't just Romans in a, in a non-fluid sort of way. It was a very fluid kind of society. So, and, and how that reflects the food as it goes on. Um, I later then get into the idea of when food ideas started to be more fixed and um, the fear of losing those traditions as we recognize it, even though this fear of losing traditions is something that also started with, um, it, it's evident with the great agricultural writers, Pliny, Columella, Varro, who already in their time were really worried about Romans moving away from what they felt were Roman traditions. So um, that's interesting to trace. I like tracing those, those lines through time, which is also the eternal table, things that change, but what is eternal is the change, actually. Yeah. It's a fa fantastic concept, and it's definitely something that a lot of cooks and cultures struggle with today, is that, that idea of how do we... How do we encompass these these fears of losing these these traditions especially when um the older generations are are dying out and and taking a lot of their oral histories with them and their and their food and their food traditions with them how do you see that in reflected in your research and your and your um look into food um in my in my more recent research, particularly on Rome, and given the orientation then of, of this college, um, there's an interesting thing that's going on that um, in, with um, what's, what I see as a constructed history of invented and... Um, Invented traditions and what I read recently, uh, Paul Friedman so generously called them non-traditional traditions. <laughs> so I loved that expression um, because it 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 it'll, there needs to be an allowance for that because um, human beings need tradition. They like the concept that there is something that is authentic. But often that needs to be collectively constructed. But the, the detriment that I see going on with that as well in Rome is that, and other places that have a really strong, in, in Italy and other places in the world, that have a strong tradition um, or a strong supposed tradition, is that it's becoming a way that stymies chefs. They get locked into a certain menu, which is a historical construction of something that was never actually really lived, but sifted out and dusted off um, and then put onto a menu that if any chef is going to open a restaurant in Rome right now, they've got to consider putting those 10 dishes on their, on their menu. And thinking about from that, 
how they're going to be able to deviate and do something that is actually original in theirs. So, uh, Gianluca Luli, you mentioned a, a very interesting point earlier today, right about what Doctor uh, or what about Professor Moyer is saying. Uh, yeah. So, one thing that I was thinking about was, for instance, Massimo Bottura's philosophy on, uh, well, especially when he first started on taking traditional recipes and kind of modernizing them, but at the same time uh, facing a bit of backlash in Modena, right? So, with a culture, with a cultural cuisine that is so embedded into the national culture of Italy and, and Rome, uh, eventually, what are, why are Italians so reluctant, generally, uh, and perhaps stereotypically, to change that grandmother recipe? Um, and I wonder, is that in a way uh, detrimental to Italian cuisine in that, like many other things that don't evolve, they sort of get left in the past, right? I think we think of traditional French cuisine. Uh, we don't see it today, I think, the way that at least in... I wasn't around in, in, in the pinnacle of traditional French cuisine, but just from reading, it seems like its time is almost past, you know, and, and I'm afraid that Italian cuisine might go down that route as well. And also, how do we tackle it? How do we convince a culture to say, uh, uh, to, you know, okay, let's move forward? Okay, um, the... the um, the comparison between French and Italian is that French cuisine had uh, long been on a road of codifying itself while it's creating itself and codifying at the same time, whereas um, Italian cuisine has never had that until very recently. And this fear of, um, of losing traditions. And um, if I can just use an example of when... Italy has more deposited um, recipes, traditional foods, certified foods of, of all kinds of certifications. They have more of those than, than anyone in Europe and perhaps in the world. Um, but what happens to a food then when that happens with regards to what has always been the evolution of Italian cuisine in that Taking, for example, the little sausage um, that they make in Bra, which is a, a little beef sausage and that's, that's eaten raw. And um, everywhere you go, it is exactly the same. There is no variation on it. And so is there, on the one hand, a comfort in that because it's been saved? And yet, on the other hand, no one can contribute to that conversation anymore. Um, I, I think of that also in the town that I live in. One of our um, certified foods is the matza fegato. It's a sausage that is made with pork, uh, with pork offal. And some people put a little more of this and, and also lung. Now, I, I'm specifying lung because... The deposited recipe does not have lung. No one else can now use lung if they want to call it um, matzah fega. So L uh, lungs as in the... As the, in the, the porks, right. Yes. right. As, as you would have in the corretella with, the, with, um, with sheep offal, lung is part of that. So, um, which when you... when I'm speaking to culinary people, but... Um, <laughs> 
who are accepted, but if you say lung to anyone, they're like, oh, well, I'm glad there aren't any lungs in there, but uh, um, I'm sure you're much more open-minded about that. But um, traditions are something that, that give us a sense of purpose, meaning, and continuity. They, um, they create us as a group, and we select which values, experiences, and objects are going to represent our group. They don't necessarily need to to have any continuity other than the one that we've created, and th and that seems to be that seems to be okay. Um, but so that fear is when you start to stretch that a, a little bit, you pushing on those edges a bit too much. We fear losing our identity, and and the loss of that identity. Um, means that we fall apart as a group. Um, and, and those social systems are extremely important. So um, I, was, I was talking the other, yes, last night about Carbonara as the example of that and how far it, using that name Carbonara and then when you come up with a, a vegan sauce called Carbonara that has no eggs, cheese, or pork, well, um, you're, you're pushing on someone's um, um, identity that way. And there is a backlash from the Romans, even though at the same time the beautiful thing about Carbonara is that the first time it's mentioned is 1950. So, um, yes. <laughs> So many wonderful things that you're saying. It's, so, it's such an honor to have you here. Love to get back to the, the Carbonara conversation in just a second. But if we can just, if we can just touch back to the, a point that you made about having these, these Italian designations, the IGP or the, the DOP, which, which were designed to protect these recipes, especially from food fraud and, and other countries taking the, these recipes or, or taking these ingredients. Um, what really stuck with me, that you, what you just said, was what it means is, is that now we can't control contribute to these food conversations. They're stagnant in time. Mm -hmm. So as an, as an answer to that, we can also start creating our own new food conversations. How do you feel about that as a, as a, a response to that, to that topic? Um, well, on my website, I mean, I'm, I consider myself an immigrant. Um, Theeternaltable.com? Uh, Sorry to interrupt. Uh, theeternaltable.com is my website, and it has a binary approach. One is... Um, in making historical meals, tracing them through time, uh, uh, meals, but recipes, um, tracing them through time, but let me get to that in another moment. Um, and the other part is something that I call Tiberia. Tiberia is an invented place name um, that, um, I, because I live, I live near the Tiber River, and I and so I, I go running, and it's a very it it's, has an affective importance to me. But I see myself, given the the, the history of Italy, in particular of Rome, um, of the influx of inflow and outgo of people, I'm part of that conversation. And what I bring with me, I've been there for thirty years. What I bring with me is my um, American experience of having had exposure to a lot of different cuisines and what I'm going to do um, what I'm going to do uh, with those foods, with those available foods. And I don't call it fusion. Um, I'm calling it code switching cuisine or um, maybe I'll come up with another name. Um, but it's something about my experience 
at, with the culture and recreating um, dishes with the vision that I have and the knowledge that I have, which I believe has always happened, um, and with the, the depositing and, and um, codifying and certifying of foods, that conversation, I think, has sort of stopped, whereas it never there, there, Italy has always been on an evolution of food um, and food, food ways and recipes. So, so that's how I see that. So you, you, mentioned, um, you, you mentioned code switching cuisine. Um, can you, can you expand a little bit more on that? It just sounds like a fantastic concept. I'd love, love to hear a little bit more about that. Um, when I moved to Italy and in, and, you know, of course you moved to Italy and they're Italians, they have Italian food, but I hadn't had the, the physical experience of what it is to be in a monoculinary culture. Um... There, I mean, I've again, I've been there for 30 years. It's changed a little bit. Um, there are more maybe Chinese restaurants, but it's a, it's a Chinese um, Italian concept. They're making Chinese food for, and, and it's the same everywhere. But um, so, I felt like I needed to to more than what I already knew. I needed to study those cuisines. So that I could have that as part of as part of my sphere, and I went abroad uh, to India and Japan and um, um, Thailand. Um, I hadn't been to Mexico, but I but other other cuisines that I studied, so that I could bring that into what I was doing in Italy. And I thought that my role um, as a person, as a culinary. Uh, um, Historian? Historian, let's say, um, was to kind of be an ambassador in Italy for those kinds of foods. And when people came to my house, they knew that they were going to be eating something that was Asian and then, or, or, or Mexican or wherever. Um, and I then branched out into creating things that were going to bring those concepts together. But again, I don't see it as as fusion so much as an expression of my experience there as a as an immigrant. And if I can uh, point out why I'm using that word instead of the word expat, um, I see expat as being a a word of privilege about Anglo's. Why is it that the the Brits and the Americans and um, other exclusive groups get to be expats and everyone else is an immigrant. So I make a point of um, including myself in that other group. That's a fascinating concept as, as itself. I hadn't thought about it from, from that point. Um, so thank you very much. Great, great conversation there on, on code switching cuisine. Something else that I'd like to say about um, Tiberia and my experience is that um, you can't see this in a podcast, but I am a, a dark-complected and or, as it's now being called, brown. I am a brown person, and people somehow expect me to be making brown food that reflects some sort of native thing that I have, which, like many Americans, I don't know what that is. Um, I've actually, when I, in this recent trip, I did one of those ancestry things because I'd like to know. Um, but I don't have a country of reference. I didn't know the, the brown part of me is my mother, and I, I didn't know her. 
So, but it's I find it interesting that expectation that I'm supposed to know about um, whatever that is and make it really well, you know. Yeah. So. And th- that brings up a great topic about the cultural imp- appropriation of food as well. And you had sort of touched that on that a little bit a little bit earlier. Um, your, your your website is is amazing. Um, you you have an, uh, an incredible um, bread um, affiliation for bread. We'd love to come back to that. But some of the some of the the, the recipes that you've created um, are sort of hyper local and very historically accurate. For instance, I'm looking at at Bockenheim's herbal herbalatum here, mm-hmm. essentially an, an ancient pie from from 1417. Jen, look at what did you think about uh, about this? Uh, so. I found those pretty interesting and one something that came to mind that I was interested in knowing was um, just like languages that we know of from because they've been written down but we don't we haven't heard them because it wasn't recording devices at that time how do we know or what is your process for determining what these recipes should taste like given the technologies of today which is something you talked about in your website the tools and techniques have changed and so a is how does that affect the outcome the way we do things today and also how can we know that we're making the taste today as it was intended in the past okay part of that is um is having a a broad study of um of the the available resources and uh, literary sources um and 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 knowing about that, and that is why it takes a, a culinary historian who who has an experience from the ancient through to the contemporary and watching how those things move, how the different ingredients change, knowing about the 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 path that it took for those spices to get there, how important they were, who was going to be eating them. Um, also because, yes, in these recipes, moving through time, you don't have quantities you don't have cooking methods they're they're very uh, sketchy um, and so a lot of it is just historical knowledge but in order for me for example to be creating a Renaissance dinner which I'm going to be doing um, tomorrow here in Toronto um, it's very important for me to know all of the available resources about the Middle Ages so I'm going through those centuries and watching how things changed as regards to, to, um, to tastes, but only being able to have those available resources, which are, uh, there are not too many of them. Um, then the objective sort of, of, of my doing that is, is, to, is more about tracing how those things have been carried through time and how those tastes have changed in accordance with the, the information that I can get um, about, about cooking methods and, and cooking over the hearth and all of that. But I want to, more than that, I'm not doing an archaeological uh, dig here. I'm trying to bring that and illuminate it for for people who are interested in culinary history, and even if they end up being um, armchair cooks, which I think a lot of, uh, <laughs> of of people buy because people are cooking less and less and buying more and more cookbooks um, because they're enjoyable. 
and you can reconstruct that dish in your mind even if you never you never take it's it's like reading a guidebook um you can get as close as you possibly can and so so what i want to do is bring that that possibility to uh as far as as close as possible to the kitchen of someone who has those standard instruments. If I'm asking people to get out their stone block and, and um, grind the wheat, well, then I'm going to lose everyone. So, um, so buy that bag of flour. But um, um, I also see the, the instruments in particular, like the debate about early music, which is something I've written on my, on my website, the debate about early music is, well, are we going to play on, ant- on ancient instruments, and how did that actually sound um, when no one who was at that period of time was playing on ancient instruments, which, just because of their age, sound differently? So you're not necessarily recreating that same sound. Um, and, and so there are certain things that we'll never know, and so I'm saying... Let's let's look at this and look at the evolution of it. My my recent thing was on Roman macaroni, and I start in in 1390 with a British recipe and move through move through time to to the Renaissance and watch that how that particular terminology terminology developed. But um, and that's as far as I can get as a as a culinary historian. In, in bringing that alive to people, which is what my objective is. Now, saying all of that, you you grind your own wheat. I and do. A, as you, as <laughs> you create your own bread, <laughs> but not with an old stone uh, not grinder. Old stone. No, what no. kind of grinder do you use for grinding your bread? I have a mock mill. A mock mill grinder. Yes, yes, and I love it. Fantastic. I, and I would recommend it. Yeah, I'm not... Uh, Promoting any any brand names, but I, I just it's a good. We'll, ha- we'll have yeah. we'll have to research that. Yeah. Um, we 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 knew that you loved ancient ancient grains and and wheat. So we Wendy and I bought um, bought you some red fife flour. Oh, wonderful! And Wendy was also able to to source um, some ancient amber wheat. Wow! Uh, yeah. Okay. So and those are in the whole grains. So okay. um, so do what you will with them. But we look forward to, to to seeing if you do make any sort of wonderful breads with uh, with what you've got. Now you also have a, a starter. I understand that you that you brought in today. How old is your starter? I have a starter that um, my my starter is Roman, and it was as starters I think should be. It was gifted to me from a. There is a uh, wonderful man who is considered the bread guru of Rome, and I was so honored that um, that he gave me a bit of the starter that he had, which is a five-year-old starter. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's interesting, the discussion about the, the age of starters and people who make bread want to know how mm-hmm. old it is and, and how many of those microbes will have remained um, and, and carried on in their generation of other other yeasts and things in the uh, in the whole floral world, the floral yeah, and fauna yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of microbes. Yeah. What's your favorite bread to make? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, you know it, it's funny because um, I mean certain there are certain ones that I could I could more easily say that's not really one of my favorites. But then every time I do a combination and having having the the, the home mill mm-hmm. really allows me to do that in in um, I was skeptical about getting it, whether or not it was going to make a difference, and it and, and it really does, and I I really I really love it. But but then each time I do it, it's like wow, that's my new favorite bread. So wow. uh, I really like working with with Kamet. Um, since I've had the mill, um, 
einkorn, milling your own einkorn and using even high quality uh, commercial einkorn, there's really, there's a huge difference mm-hmm. um, in the outcome. And, so, and, and I now love einkorn, whereas before it was meh. And and einkorn and emer would, were sort of the, the two ancient grains that right, have right. that have led down this pathway to bread and 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 pasta for us. Right, right. Beautiful, beautiful work. So and and um, barley as well when it's freshly milled as opposed to barley flour, um, it doesn't make this leaden bread that mm. you would uh, you think it would make. So Interesting. it's actually my my bread I can get up to 40% barley and still have a good lift. So, um, nice. That's, that's wonderful. So would you say that, um, would you say that the grain, um, dictates the bread? You mean the shape of it or Or the, the, or the style? Um, Goodness, I think I I I, I hadn't I never thought about that, but I I guess you're right. I think about the grain, and how it's going to come out, how I'm going to want to slice that. Mm-hmm. Um, as even even the scoring, mm-hmm. the, the the scoring method that I want to use. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. Now, do you do you feel like bread bread should be sliced or should it be ripped and torn and pulled apart? <laughs> Just putting you on the spot right, if you, here. If, if you have a, if you have a um, a large bull round shaped uh, bread and you're ripping it apart at your table, that's that would kind of end up seeming uncouth now. I think, and uh, yeah. So, Gianluca. Um, yeah. Yes, I just going back to your starter. <clears throat> um, would you say that the relationship between flavor development and time is linear, linear in basically perpetuity, or do you reach a point where the starter has reached a certain age where now the flavor starts to go down. Assuming that all else is equal, you treat it the same way. I think I think it's the opposite, though, that um, when it's it's a young, rambunctious kind of starter, um, you're not necessarily going to be getting those same results until it, it plateaus off and becomes more mature. But, but losing the... Um, the complexity of the flavor depends on your care of the starter, really. Um, being being consistent, giving it, it the the kind of flour that it's used to having. Um, so so uh, feeding with a certain amount of consistency, but but um, as as we talked about before the the podcast started, um, it doesn't need to be that precious. But I think it's the the opposite that the young starter is more unpredictable, and then it, mm-hmm. it becomes reliable. <laughs> There's yeah. definitely a connection to, to human development there, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, I attended a a talk that you did um, last night on the history of pasta, and I was I was sort of blown away with the, with with this scandalous issue that's happening right now in Italy about uh, spaghetti alla carbonara. Mm-hmm. Um, would you like to sort of just step in a little bit and tell us about what what's what's happening with with carbonara? And give us some some background info on on that. Yeah, um, carbonara is a very interesting. I always like looking at things not in a in a non judgmental way by taking a sociological anthropological stance. And carbonara is very interesting from that point of view because very recently um, it's become sort of the uh, object of the poster child for for when we talk about authenticity, 
when you're on Facebook food pages and the, the discussion starts about authenticity, uh, which which really makes me cringe because of the way it's approached, somehow carbonara tends to get in there and then it's, well, my father-in-law, he's from Italy and he did this and da 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 um, um, And whereas that's a dish who that has several origin stories, um, some of them, one of them which includes American GIs coming in with the bacon and eggs, um, which, which some chefs actually, Roman chefs will adhere to that. Um, others go with, you know, it has lots of pepper on it and that's why it's called carbonara. Um, just different ones that tend to be serving the purpose, that affective purpose of what you want the or origin story to be. So um, that's unsure. And yet the need for there to be one and the argument around it, in addition to for the, the, the need for there to be one original, actual carbonara recipe when we don't even know what it came from. Um, and if you look at the etymology of that, you have pasta or spaghetti, um, because more pasta forms, surprisingly, are allowed in that dish, um, alla carbonara. And anything else in Italian that's called alla something is very flexible. Alla boscaiola, for example, um, of the, the woodsman. Um, you can put any variety of mushrooms, of sauce, of you want to throw in a little bit of, of pancetta, you can. But somehow we won't allow that to happen with carbonara. Mm. And and to call it authentic, we use some sort of newly constructed recipe as a way of dismissing everyone else. Um, and you see that affective thing resulting in a very recent, um, the Ten Commandments put out in Rome, the Ten Commandments of Carbonara, <laughs> where they list all of the things that you can and cannot do. Um, and what other food has Ten Commandments right. to it? What, what are some of those things on the on the on the Ten Commandments? Well, that you need to use um, guanciale and not bacon. Um, there can't be any uh, um, garlic or onion. Certainly, no other fats: butter, oil, lard. Um, absolutely no cream. Cream seems to be the one that gets people's gander up um, more than anything else. But if you look through when those recipes started being written, um, now his name is going to escape me. Um, <laughs> we can edit it in afterwards. <laughs> Carnacina. Okay. Carnacina is a Roman chef in his, his 1962 book, um, called uh, uh, Cucina Romana, Roman Cuisine, um, he puts both butter and cream in his. Mm. Now, as an authority, and using that word authority and authentic, who is it who's deciding then? Who are the, the, deciding, uh, the deciding committee mm -hmm. of what authentic is? When you have a, a Roman chef, let's take Araboni writing in 1929, um, so we take that even back even further. Writing in 19, 1929, the first Roman um, regional cookbook, when regional cookbooks were absolutely not a thing. They become so after, um, after the end of fascism. 1929, she does not have carbonara in there in any shape or form. 
Um, and you have the sort sort of the the, the definition of, of the literal uh, translation is in the manner of charcoal burners. So is it, is it required that, that that this is cooked over charcoal? Well, no. The charcoal this the, the charcoal in this um, a la carbonare carbonai mm -hmm. is um, colliers is mm -hmm. the translation of that. So. Um, a collier is a person who went into the woods, spent six to eight months in the woods, and made charcoal, which was sold in town. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, that's a person in a position who did that. So it's just like um, in the woodsman style. Okay. This is in the collier mm -hmm. style, mm -hmm. is the, the etymology of the word. So in the... Um, the kinds of things that they would have been able to take with them into the woods um, when when they needed to stay there for long periods of time, and um, whether that included you know eggs, uh, bacon, and uh, bacon, we not bacon, oops, oh. guanciale, yeah. um, um, is is that's a little bit difficult to get a hold of. There's another one that. It's not about what they took into the woods necessarily as when they came back, they already had the grisha. The grisha is a, is a pasta made with, um, with a, a, either pancetta or guanciale, um, depending on how cult-like you become about it, that was already something that was part of their culinary grammar. And they, it, it, this one thing that I read by a Roman... Um, Historian, but written in the written in the sixties. Though he was, even though he was uh, older at that point, but um, that the actual history of that is that the colliers would return. Their wives were sitting there. Oh, these poor men coming back from that work. What is it that we can create to celebrate their um, their their homecoming? Well, all we have is the grisha, but if we wanted to dress that up, we could also add eggs and cheese to mm. that. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So, um, so that's another origin story with with an affective kind of thing. Amazing. Um, so, yeah. And just for our listeners out there, um, guanciale would be would be the jowl of of a pig that's been pork that's jowl. been that's been cured, um, and pancetta would be pork belly, which has also been cured. Now it's important to note neither of these have been smoked, which where where bacon has been smoked. Right. So, uh, Professor Moyer, if I was to invite you to my house and ask you to cook me a spaghetti alla carbonara, how would what would you do? What would what would the process be? Okay, well, I, I want to say that I do have privileged information on this because I went to the original, um, the restaurant of the original winner of uh, the the decisive carbonara recipe. In um, there was a competition that was held to to make this this uh, landmark decision about how carbonara was going to be made. So, um, two thousand eight. A, the man who wins it is the chef at Salumeria Roscioli in the heart of Rome. Um, and wonderfully, he's actually Tunisian. And he's not Fantastic. Roman. Fantastic. Code-switching cuisine. Yes, yes. And he had, um, he had only just two years previously started doing, doing Roman cuisine at, um, he had, he had, uh, he was a chef already. And he went in as a chef to Roscioli. But he needed to learn Roman food. And um, so his recipe is that for, um, for 
it, you add one extra egg yolk, but then for each person you have um, you have one egg yolk then. So a little bit for every two people, an extra egg yolk. But the, the eggs that they use in Rome, which come from Pisa, which are... Um, I don't know what the feed is that they they're, they they all know about these particular eggs and they make a huge difference. That yolk is itself is like butter. Wow! It's it's just the most amazing. Um, t- it doesn't have a strong sulfur taste, but the texture of it is is like no other egg I've really ever, ever had. So eggs have to have beautiful eggs. So it's it's these beautiful eggs and then the guanciale they they the guanciale is also not from Rome but they tend to get it from the the Marche region um, particularly um, Ancona um, as well. And that that's cut up into cubes that are about a centimeter a centimeter square. So they're larger than we would intuitively think of making something wonderfully crispy and putting it on. They're cooked at a very high heat so that they get crispy on the outside, remain soft on the inside, make that little bit of... um, of, uh, Render the fat down a little bit. Rendering the fat so that you you actually don't need to add other other fats to that. So the eggs then are mixed up. He does a 75-25% of... um, Pecorino Romano, 75, and then he says sweetened a little bit with 25% of, um, <laughs> of the, the Parmigiano. The language of food, sweetened so, with. Right, right. So it's sweetened with Parmigiano, and so you don't get that full-on powerful, because a, a Pecorino Romano is very strong, and then you've got those really soft eggs. That, get, that gets mixed up with that. Um, now... If I could add my alteration to that is that right before the pasta is done, um, instead of adding that water in afterwards, and it is a little bit risky, my, my, my thing, but to temper the eggs and the cheese, which have been beaten together, and you make that sauce, add your guanciale, add your, um, and add your hot pasta to that, which should be arriving at when you get to the al dente stage, um, the the sauce itself is going to 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 um, uh, absorb uh, absorb tighten up anyway just with the contact with that sauce so even if it seems a little bit watery what happens in the way that his name is Nabil Nabil Hassan the way Nabil does it is to add um, the, the 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 liquid later so. Um, but my fear was, my idea was, well, that, that if you're making a pastry cream and the way that that works is you're adding the hot liquid little by little, um, you temper your eggs, and then you can, so if you're adding that all of that hot pasta, you do risk having some of it congeal. So um, there's the recipe. Amazing. Uh, black pepper on top? And, and black pepper on top. Is it um, a necessity? Does it have to be there? Uh, well, okay, there are, there's one of the other myths about carbonara (laughs) is that it's called carbonara because it has loads of black pepper Mm -hmm. on top. And so you get that thing about the colliers and that Mm. they're working with the coal and a la carbonara really refers to the, the color of having all of that pepper. So, um, so you get into another one of those and, and people are now discussing, well, 
um, because this is such a hair-splitting thing, would there have been pepper and would those people have been able to afford pepper? My answer to that is is yes, because pepper had long um, become affordable for a, a, a wide range of socioeconomic situations. Mm. It was also used to for curing for curing meats. Mm-hmm. Um, so already, if you're in a situation where you've got um, guanciale, you've got pepper available. Mm-hmm. So all of Fantastic. those things sort of match up. Can't, for me. I can't wait to to try that exact recipe that that, that you talked about there. Um, and just just on the note of a Tunisian um, winning the the carbonara recipe, mm-hmm. um, we had uh, last year we had a, a George Brown graduate. Um, his name was uh, Kushit Sethi. And he represented Canada at the 2018 Berea uh, Pasta World Championship and came in fourth place. Oh wow! So, um, so in terms of wow. in terms of okay. um, um, code switching cuisine, exactly. and and when we have a large Italian population here in Canada, so it was amazing yeah. that amazing that to to, to see that, um, Professor Professor Moyer, um, you, as we're as we're talking and and moving along um, with this with this wonderful wonderful conversation. Um, just to put you on the spot again, what's comfort food for you? <laughs> buttered toast. Buttered toast. Toast yes. with a with a great deal yes. of butter. In. Your own. My your own. My uh, own toast. Yeah, yeah. And I have to, um, if I'm going to, I'm studying and and I'm I'm going to make uh, afternoon tea. Um, I I have to. I I I am a. I, is, I love making bread, and um, but I'm a carb watcher, mm-hmm. and so I'll allow myself to. I'll say, okay, we're gonna have one piece of breaded toast, and then you know and that will be it. But I do have to make a decision about how many slices I'm going to allow myself to have because otherwise it will just go wild. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. In your in your research into um, into into that was pasta. A fun question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I heard you mention um, last night that eating in Italy has become a holiday food. Mm. What, did, what did you mean by that? This, um, I, I have a bit of a bone to pick with, as a historian, with um, the idea of the cucina povera, and which means poor cuisine, and how that gets presented on the so-called rustic menus. Um, first of all, a lot of those foods are 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 including they well first let me go back. They disregard what it was to be poor and it was not all about invention and um, putting things together and and then somehow having a miraculously well laid table with the poorer or less refined foods. Um, it was about, a monophagous diet often of eating the same thing every single day. Now, uh, that we fish some of those out. or a pulse. Yeah, yeah. Um, So in in my book, Chewing the Fat, um, this woman who was a collier said that breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, every single day was was polenta. Um, They would then forage and find things to put together with that, and they brought their own goat so that they could have um, um, goat milk to mix with that. Freshly, fresh, fresh goat milk. Yeah, yeah. So, Absolute necessity. We're not allowed to do that in restaurants. We're not allowed to bring goats into our restaurants or, or even use unpasteurized milk in Canada, unfortunately. But Yeah, in many other places as well. The unpasteurized thing is really... Um, a, a topic a for another time. topic, yes. <laughs> so... 
Um, but that a lot of these foods, uh, when you're talking about, you know, any kind of filled pasta, um, those were things that you ate on your festival day um, or on or on a on a holiday. So many t- people told me then that um, the only time they had a dessert was Christmas and Easter and maybe other other kinds of feast days. But it had to be a major feast day. Um, when um, even eating pasta itself was was a treat that that you didn't necessarily have every day. There were a lot of beans, a lot of beans and vegetables. And as this, um, as one woman said to me, you know, it was it was beans and cabbage and beans and vegetables and beans with beans and um, and then maybe you would get some um, fragments of of the the class that she was in, some fragments of pasta that you could put with the beans. Um, the the broken bits, mm-hmm. so um, that all of those foods get represented as being part of the poor cuisine, um, or even the uh, the ribolita, which is a reboiled soup with the bread and everything. Um, that was also a treat. There are certain things that are so. These treats are ending up on these menus that then we get to pick one off and go to another restaurant the next day, um, and not eat that same thing every single day. Mm-hmm. So, so tourists coming to Italy are just are looking for these for these celebratory foods that um, that really aren't that don't represent what the the, the real the real food is in right in, yeah, yeah. in different. And, and particularly cultures. with that, the use of that word, the the poor cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I much more appreciate popular cuisine, okay. uh, but the cucina povera, um, um, poverty is not a cuisine. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. Uh, so one question I'm thinking about is, um, obviously as a historian, you're looking at <clears throat> the way things have been done, right? But in terms of ex- just extrapolating a point of view, uh, saying to many generations looking forward, is there anything happening right now to Italian cuisine or in particular Roman cuisine that, say, in 100 years from now, they'll see as a staple of the cuisine? Or do you think the cuisine will stay relatively the same? Okay, I think that's that's um, also an important question in this um, topic about has the, has the evolution of the cuisine been stopped because if you look at the um, the template menu, that menu that if you open a restaurant in Rome, you've got to consider those um, 10, 12 dishes that you put on a menu and how you're going to express yourself as a chef. Um, if those, those expressions that are happening now are what are going to be carried on into the future, and then that sifting out process of what worked and what we uh, developed an um, an affective relationship with certain foods. Um, that's going to be what's going to be carried on. I don't see that necessarily happening with new food trends. Maybe the um, maybe the pizza, which is a a new kind of pizza that's coming out in 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 Rome, um, has been for a little bit oh, a little while. It's now also in. I realize it's in New York and I think other places, but. Um, those kinds of developments need to be happening so that we can make those those new traditions. Um, and if you look at that menu that that is considered 
the historical, the accurate, the authentic Roman menu, um, supposedly representing Roman culinary history, we're talking about about maybe 150 years, whereas, which is part of the uh, raison d'etre of my, of my book on Rome. Well, no, we're starting 2,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and where is all of that middle ground going? Um, and so given the vision that that, that historical construct is, is constructed, it's false, basically, um, or uh, created and sifting and choosing, let's create some new things that the, gen- the future generations are going to adhere to? That was a good question. What advice would you give to any young um, chef or culinary student who's traveling to Italy for the first time? Oh, traveling to Italy for the first time. What should they um, eat? What should they do? What, what, how should they approach food in Italy? Well, um, the resources that are available to navigate the situation um, have, have basically become um, Michelin guidebooks and or TripAdvisor. And we know that both of those, in their own way, are, are skewed. Um, I personally know a, 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 a person who, who, who finished uh, university and got a job. She did, was out of a job and so um, finished university. She had studied languages and got a job writing false reviews for TripAdvisor. So um, the other thing is there are a lot of undiscerning palettes out there of people who like to, to write those reviews learning how to read between the lines. So, um, so yeah, I don't know that I'm leading towards any, any sort of help, but relying on as many sources as, as you can, people that you know there, whose palate you trust. Um, I love Italy, but it is the land of ripoffs, and, and that mm-hmm. so much happens in the culinary sphere because they know that the tourists are going to be coming in. You can throw anything in front of them. They'll eat it. They may even approach it as the emperor's new clothes where they think they're supposed to like it, and they'll mm-hmm. go and write a good review about mm-hmm. it. Um, so often it happens. It's a big problem in Rome of then going to a place and being just grossly overcharged. Mm-hmm. There was a recent thing of uh, um, a Japanese couple who went out and, and got two dishes of pasta and were, we were charged 600 euros for it. So, um, so unfortunate. And then I hear about those things and I, and I ask people, well, did you put it on social media? Well, no, because it did. So, so we're only hearing about the, the, those few that actually happen. So be very careful and do a lot of research and um, ask people that you know you trust who have discerning palates. Amazing. It's been an honor having you here. I'd like to thank say you. thank you to, to Gianluca for coming in and asking some amazing questions. Gracias, and Gianluca. and uh, Professor Moyer, it's been a, a pleasure having you here on the Chef Pod where we're sowing, sowing the seeds for the future of the culinary industry. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's very enjoyable. <laughs>